Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intervals Pod. We are a public humanities initiative of the Organization of American Historians, and I'm your host, Christopher Brick, here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications. And today, it's also a real joy for OAH and myself to be welcoming Dr. Alicia Gutierrez-Romain to the show to deliver our 17th guest lecture of the series. Alicia is currently an assistant professor of history at La Sierra University in Riverside, California, and her talk, Butchery in Tijuana, Abortions and Abortion Decriminalization in California, draws from some of the research that she used to develop her recent book on this subject. And it's worth noting the title of that book here begins From Back Alley to the Border. And that's very much on purpose because the border has an important role to play in this story. As both an international demarcation in the way that it's conventionally conceived and understood, and also as an ideological space for the formation of ideas about race, gender, and national identity. The border, Alicia encourages us to consider, also bifurcated that part of North America into distinct regimes of abortion access that in turn contributed greatly to the region's unique constellations of politics, law, and culture, as much as it did to the health security of its women. With abortion options severely limited in California, the proliferation of an abortion industry on the Baja California side of the U.S.-Mexico border produced a panic as its existence became more well-known in the U.S. State and federal law enforcement agencies devoted resources to the investigation of a so-called international abortion ring operating on Mexico's side of the border. And they put their considerable influence behind the establishment of new laws to, quote, combat the problem, unquote. The designation of Tijuana as a city synonymous with the butchery of American women energized California's abortion liberalization movement alongside and in league with racist ideas about Mexico that hardened American willingness to impose strict border controls. It's thoughtful, perceptive work that got me thinking about the history of public health in a whole new way. And here she is, Dr. Alicia Gutierrez-Romain on Tijuana Abortions and the History of Abortion Decriminalization in California. Abortion is healthcare. This is a slogan you might have heard lately. Since the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade in 1973, abortion rights and access have come under fire. While abortion is still technically legal, in many states it's becoming increasingly inaccessible. A greater understanding of the history of abortion decriminalization in the U.S. can help us see the public health origins of abortion legislation. If we forget what precipitated abortion decriminalization, we risk making this procedure dangerous again. I'm Alicia Gutierrez-Romain, and welcome to this episode of Intervals. Over the course of the 19th century, abortion became illegal in every state. These early abortion restrictions align with physicians' efforts to consolidate professional medical authority, concerns about race suicide and immigrant women's fecundity, and attempts to protect women from quacks. By the middle of the 20th century, abortion laws were well entrenched, 
and criminal abortions were becoming easier to prosecute as legal abortions were almost exclusively taking place in hospitals. Legal abortions required quite a bit of red tape, and they weren't sure things. For most women, their desire to have an abortion was not enough to permit a legal one. So for women who wanted to take matters into their own hands and have control over their own destinies, illegal abortions were likely the best bet. Illegal abortions run along a spectrum. They could be clean, hygienic, and safe, or they could be bloody spectacles of incompetence. They could be performed so safely that women could get them done during their lunch break and go back to work, or they could be performed by an untrained, unskilled butcher who accidentally perforated a uterus, or who failed to adequately clean their medical instruments. It's impossible to generalize illegal abortions and providers of illegal abortions who, too, ran along a spectrum, from legitimately trained professionals who provided abortions for illegitimate reasons, to uneducated profiteers seeking to earn a quick buck. That being said, there are some things we can say in general. One, black markets are wealth-sensitive. That means those who can afford it often get the best treatment, and they can often afford better quality. Black markets aren't accountable to anyone. And since the procedures are illegal, there are only so many demands that women can make. In essence, take it or leave it. If you don't like what this illicit provider provides, then go somewhere else. This desperation can compel some to accept conditions that would otherwise be unacceptable. Illegal abortions took place in the 19th century as these abortion laws were being drafted, and they continued to take place into the 20th century as legal abortions moved into the hospital. The only things that changed were how these abortions took place, how much experience illegal abortion providers had, and the treatment options that were available if or when these illegal abortions went badly. As abortions became harder to get in the United States, they became easier to get in Mexico. According to Stephen W. Bender, quote, the U.S. demand for abortions produced a surreptitious market. Particularly in the 1960s, Tijuana and nearby Ensenada served as an abortion emporium for U.S. women who faced the alternative in the United States of back-alley abortions or safer but cost-prohibitive abortions by U.S. doctors acting illegally. Tijuana was a cheaper option, end quote. By the 1950s and 60s, the border had become more visible to Americans through increased regulation. Along this border with Mexico, concerns about illegal immigration added to this idea that the U.S.-Mexico border was a lawless place. Additionally, sensational newspaper coverage helped to, quote, explicitly link the illegal Mexican aliens, quote, with criminal activity and other vices. In public opinion, Border cities were vice-ridden and full of crime. And these concerns about borders emerged when an unprecedented number of Americans were traveling across them for pleasure and leisure. As Mexican border towns became sites of American decadence, abortions made their way into this space as well. Now, American women had been traveling to other countries for abortions for years. But in the 1950s and 60s, they started seeking abortions right across the border. 
And this was in light of Therapeutic Abortion Committee's more judicious interpretations of what constituted a legal abortion and the increasing ease with which white American people could cross the border. Additionally, concerns about the legality of a border. Additionally, concerns about the legality of border abortions may have been allayed after a California court decided in the case People v. Buffum in 1953. This case accelerated the abortion tourism industry at the border. In the Buffum case, Reginald Rankin and Dr. Roy L. Buffum were indicted for violating California's abortion law. According to the Buffum indictment, Buffum and Rankin operated an office in Long Beach, California, where they made arrangements with women seeking abortions. The arrangements would include taking the women's phone numbers, calling them, and arranging a designated meeting spot. As they met, At this meeting point, Buffum or Rankin would then transport the women to an office in Tijuana where another man would perform the procedure. After the procedure, Buffum or Rankin would drive the women home, and once they returned to Long Beach, they went their separate ways. In the abortions that brought about Buffum and Rankin's arrests, four women had been transported to Tijuana, and three had required hospitalizations. While they were hospitalized, it became clear that these women had illegal abortions, and this discovery led to an investigation and Buffum and Rankin's arrests. However, the two men eventually won their appeal on what might, on the surface, appear to be a technicality. Specifically, the initial Buffum decision was reversed because the actual abortions took place in Mexico. Although there was ample evidence, the fact that the crime had been performed out of the state muddied the waters. Specifically, the court stated that although the statute, quote, made no reference to the place or the performance of the abortion, it must be assumed that the legislature did not intend to regulate conduct taking place outside the borders of the state, end quote. Thus, the judgment was reversed, the court recognizing the limits of its power. The Buffum decision opened the floodgates of American abortion tourism in nearby border cities and contributed to the development of California's 1950s and 1960s Tijuana abortion phenomenon. Despite countless undercover assignments and surveillance in Tijuana by law enforcement and professional medical societies, authorities were unable to stop the surge of American women procuring abortions along the border. One report in 1967 estimated that there were about 75 abortionists operating regularly in Tijuana. But border abortions weren't just limited to Tijuana, and this estimate didn't include other places like Mexicali, Juarez, or Ensenada, which all had their own abortion businesses as well. As the abortion industry on the border grew, unskilled abortionists had greater opportunities to offer their services. Desperate women, many of whom simply crossed the border and asked around, they rarely looked for the most qualified abortionists, and they simply accepted the services of the first person they found. These unskilled abortionists didn't necessarily kill their patients. Rather, women who went to these unskilled abortionists didn't get hygienic treatment, pain relievers, or sometimes even complete abortions. When these incomplete abortions became septic, These women were treated for infections or had dilation and curettments in American emergency rooms. 
Women's inability to access legal abortions didn't just result in an increase in border abortions. Self-induced abortions became more visible, too. In 1966, Los Angeles County General Hospital experienced a brief surge in tetanus infections from women attempting to self-induce miscarriage. According to hospital officials, these cases were pretty typical of, quote, an alarming upswing in the number of women who are returning to old wife remedies and self-induced abortions, end quote. Activist Pat McGinnis realized that some women's only option was to do it themselves. She helped orchestrate workshops instructing women how to perform abortions and explaining when a trip to the emergency room was absolutely necessary. DIY abortion methods utilize knitting needles, coat hangers, Lysol, bleach, turpentine, kerosene, rubber catheters, and even, for the most desperate, raw spaghetti. And while we might cringe at the thought, these were methods that were available to poorer women. The goal with these abortions was to simply induce the abortion to a point where a hospital had to finish the job. Between border abortions and DIY abortions, officials at Los Angeles County General claimed that the hospital saw about 100 patients per month with complications from these procedures. One staff physician claimed that the hospital had, quote, more experience treating women who had become infected due to an abortion than any other hospital in the state and perhaps in the country, end quote. The staff physician at Los Angeles County General believe the hospital had such a workload because of its proximity to Tijuana. Pat McGinnis also recognized the potential dangers that existed when women crossed the border for abortions. She often passed out leaflets with the names of reputable and safe providers in Mexico. However, the occasional crackdown from American or Mexican law enforcement complicated efforts to keep this list up to date. These lists also often included tips to help identify whether the abortionist they selected was reputable. For example, McGinnis encouraged women to ask taxi drivers to find regular gynecologists and cautioned that if an abortion was less than $300, you might want to see some credentials first. As California state legislators debated abortion law in 1962, medical experts in the U.S. believed that the number of abortions performed in the country ranged between 375,000 and 2 million per year, with 1 million being a pretty conservative figure. Although it's difficult to get a precise figure for black market commodities and services, the medical experts estimated about 5,000 deaths per year as a result of poorly performed abortions. Though the percentage of abortion deaths represented in the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office had steadily declined since the 1920s and 30s, representing on average 0.09% of the total number of coroner cases, abortion was becoming more visible in public discourse. With continued coverage of illegal abortions and illegal operations in daily newspapers, it became clear that this problem was not going away. According to Kristen Luker, efforts to standardize abortion law generated greater publicity and brought abortion into the public purview. As abortion became increasingly legislated and it moved from the home to the hospital or from the doctor's office to the hospital, with more people becoming involved, 
there were just more opportunities for conflict to arise. So let's put a pin in what we know about illegal abortions in Mexico, and let's switch gears to talk a little bit about what's going on in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. After World War II, with the baby boom, abortion and maternal mortality became important figures in representing America's status as a modern nation. Babies that were born in the Babies that were born in the post-war period experienced a new social, cultural, and medical world that was very different from that of their parents and really from most other people before them. Post-war parents of means spent more on their babies, they bought them more clothes and toys, they purchased pre-made baby food at the grocery store, and they even took them to the doctor more often. In short, post-war babies were precious, and suburban families and motherhood were exalted. Additionally, because of advances in medicine, there weren't as many illnesses or diseases that could prevent a woman from carrying a pregnancy to term. In this modern pronatalist world, women who wanted abortions were anomalies. That is, of course, unless their desire for an abortion fell within very specific parameters, like there is a problem with her, there is a problem with the baby, or with this pregnancy as a whole. And the thalidomide tragedy and rubella outbreak, which resulted in the births of infants with severe defects, opened the door for discussion about abortion to take place. Thalidomide was a pharmaceutical drug that many women took for its off-label uses, like fighting nausea or morning sickness. In 1962, its effects became known worldwide. Most commonly, Thalidomide affected embryonic limb development and growth, which resulted in phocomelia, which is a rare disorder where the limbs are not fully formed uh, or not fully developed in utero. Now, the United States did not see many of these cases, and there was no outbreak on the scale as it was in Europe, but knowledge of this outbreak was enough to produce, quote, an anxiety about pregnancy, end quote. Now, the rubella or German measles epidemic of the 1960s was significant in changing public perceptions about abortion laws in the U.S. While rubella caused only a minor rash and fever in adults, if a woman was pregnant, it could result in miscarriage, infant death, intellectual disability, blindness, deafness, or even heart malformations. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 20,000 babies were born with congenital rubella syndrome during this epidemic. There was no cure for rubella, and though the vaccine was first licensed in 1963, mass vaccination didn't begin until the late 1960s. Now, rubella did not pose an imminent threat to the mother, but it was up to doctors and therapeutic abortion committees to determine whether the possibility of fetal abnormalities, was enough to justify a therapeutic abortion. But physicians disagreed whether it did. As a result, hospitals and therapeutic abortion committees were uneven in their application when it came to rubella patients. One investigation of several hospitals in the San Francisco Bay Area from August 1964 to 1965 
found that three hospitals had performed therapeutic abortions following rubella diagnoses in a first trimester of pregnancy. Another three had performed abortions following uh, rubella diagnosis for psychiatric reasons, specifically concerns about suicide. And another would allow therapeutic abortions for rubella within the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. However, this was only if a woman had consulted with a physician at the time that she was infected. Most hospital representatives acknowledged the inconsistencies in their rules, but since the victims of German measles were predominantly white middle-class women with normative sexual practices, the outbreak opened the door for discussion about abortions as a public health measure and helped make abortion more acceptable. These weren't careless, unwed women. Together with their husbands, They were respectable parents whose concerns about their children's livelihoods fit within certain parameters of the post-war period's pro-natalist focus. Together, these families were utilizing this new vocabulary of family planning and genetics to argue for legal abortion when a woman's life was not at risk. This is the context when Dr. Leon Bellis referred a woman to an abortionist. Though neither she nor the fetus had an illness or disease, he referred her to an abortionist because he feared her life would be at risk if he didn't. Dr. Bellis was a Russian-born obstetrician and gynecologist, and for all intents and purposes, he was a respected member of the medical community in Los Angeles, and he had become a leading crusader against California's existing anti-abortion laws. In 1966, he referred Cheryl Bryant to an unlicensed physician for an illegal abortion. Eventually, he was found guilty, and in 1969, he appealed his conviction, defending his actions. He believed the young woman and her fiancé were determined to terminate the pregnancy one way or another. And even though the couple planned to marry, they had other goals they wanted to pursue first. Dr. Bellis refused to perform the procedure himself, but ultimately referred Cheryl Bryant to a trusted colleague for the illegal procedure because he worried that the couple's desperation would push them too far. And he worried that this desperation would push them to butchery in Tijuana or self-mutilation. Having witnessed the results of several Tijuana abortions, he knew of their danger, and he went so far as to tell this couple that when they went to Tijuana for abortions, they were, quote, taking their lives in their hands, end quote. On May 10, 1966, Dr. Carl Lertis performed an abortion on Cheryl Bryant in a Shula Vista apartment office. The police had been tipped off and they raided the building as she was recovering from her procedure. Notebooks in the office suggested that Dr. Bellis had referred 13 other women to Dr. Lertis before. Dr. Bellis was arrested, indicted, and ultimately found guilty of abortion and conspiring to commit abortion. The Court of Appeals affirmed the lower court's decision, so Dr. Bellis took his case to the California Supreme Court, where he challenged the constitutionality of California's abortion statute. When People of the State of California versus Bellis made its way to the California Supreme Court, the case drew national attention. The press immediately recognized its potential as a landmark case for abortion legislation. The professional medical community overwhelmingly supported Dr. Bellis. They overwhelmingly respected him. 
The public even felt sympathy for Cheryl Bryant. In a letter to the Los Angeles Times, a woman In a letter to the Los Angeles Times, a woman from Sherman Oaks, California asked what was better, for a doctor to perform the procedure safely or to send women off to abortion clinics in Tijuana. She argued that countless young girls would be saved by not having to resort to leeches who profited from botched abortions. Dr. Bellis believed that the potential butchery, whether imagined or imminent, was sufficient for him to state that Cheryl Bryant's life was in danger. His fears weren't simply based on some kind of idea about racial, ethnic, or nationalistic superiority. In fact, in fact, just weeks after Cheryl Bryant's abortion, a 24-year-old woman from Woodlands Hills In fact, just weeks after Cheryl Bryant's abortion, a 24-year-old woman from Woodland Hills, California, was found dead in Tijuana after an illegal abortion. When Bellis appeared before the California Supreme Court, he and his attorneys argued that California's abortion statute was vague and unconstitutional. Specifically, Bellis's argument challenged the validity of the, quote, necessary to preserve life, quote, cause, in the abortion statute. Specifically, Bellis's argument challenged the validity of the necessary to preserve life clause in the abortion statute. According to their argument, the requisite phrase had no clear meaning. Was potential danger an acceptable justification for illegal abortion, or did the danger need to be imminent? The courts had already rejected the interpretation that the statute required certainty or immediacy of death in People v. Abarbanel and People v. Ballard because the requirement would abridge a woman's constitutional rights. Furthermore, the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Griswold v. Connecticut had already held that couples had a right to marital privacy that protected their use of contraceptives. And since about 90% of abortions were performed on married women, it might appear that abortions fell within Griswold's purview. As the arguments unfolded, it became clear that abortion laws didn't stop abortions. They simply reduced the number of safe abortions. According to contemporary evidence, hygienic abortions performed early in pregnancy resulted in minimal risks to women, while illegal abortions were one of the greatest causes of maternal deaths in California. While not all illegal abortions resulted in death, the rate of infection from criminal abortions was significantly greater than that of legal abortions. And in an amicus brief submitted to the court, 178 deans of medical schools from California and the rest of the country stated that the unfortunate reality was that the statute designed in 1850, which was designed to protect women, had, quote, in modern times become a scourge, end quote. The California Supreme Court ruled in Bellis's favor. The basis for his challenge had been an assumption about what border abortions meant for American women. Specifically, Bellis feared that Cheryl Bryant would, quote, seek an illegal abortion in Tijuana under substandard medical conditions, end quote. That the judges took on Bellis's case and California's antiquated law suggests that the California Supreme Court accepted this fear of border abortions as a reasonable premise. While Mexico had offered real relief for countless women, the problem with Mexican abortions was the American law that drove women to them. 
While advances in medicine had all but eradicated justifiable reasons for therapeutic abortions, physicians questioned whether they were expected to turn away women whose desperation would drive them, quite literally, to the abortionists of Mexico. Citing fears of potential butchery, doctors claimed that not being able to provide these women safe abortions was the danger. California's Supreme Court found its abortion statute void for vagueness, and by 1970, a number of states had pushed for repeals of their existing abortion laws, while several others legalized abortion on demand. Nevertheless, the issue had not yet been decided at the federal level, and it would not be until Roe v. Wade in 1973. As the pendulum began to swing towards abortion liberalization, anti-abortion groups mobilized and became increasingly organized. The passage of the Hyde Amendment in 1976 prohibited federal dollars from being used for abortion. This ruling specifically affected Medicaid users and prohibited poor women, and predominantly women of color, from acquiring legal abortions affordably. Though abortions were legal in 1977 when Rosie Jimenez needed an abortion, the $400 fee was cost prohibitive. She was a student, a single mother, and she relied on welfare. Her desire to seek a cheaper abortion put her in the path of an unlicensed abortionist, and this decision cost her her life. The U.S. Supreme Court decision in Harris v. McRae upheld the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment essentially saying that a woman's inability to afford an abortion was her own problem and not one of the state's creation. And with the anti-abortion, anti-feminist, and anti-welfare administrations of Reagan and Bush Sr., abortion restrictions started becoming part of the fabric of American life. When Pennsylvania decided to stop allocating Medicaid funds for abortion in 1985, one Women's Center volunteer noted that the center began to appear... When Pennsylvania decided to stop allocating Medicaid funds for abortion in 1985, one Women Center volunteer noted that the center began to receive phone calls from desperate women asking whether a fall down a stairs would be enough to induce a miscarriage. In 1989, Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey signed the Abortion Control Act. This ruling was one of the first attempts by an individual state to restrict abortions after Roe. The act had several provisions that were designed to limit abortions, like informed consent, spousal notification, parental notification, and a 24-hour waiting period. And when Casey signed the act, it was immediately challenged by a number of abortion providers, counselors, and doctors, and it ultimately turned into a class action lawsuit, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. It was 1992 when Casey made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The attorneys for the appellants argued that Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act effectively overturned Roe since it imposed so many regulations on the women seeking abortions and on the doctors providing them. On the other hand, the attorneys for the defendants argued that they weren't overturning Roe, they were just regulating abortion. In prior challenges to Roe, the U.S. Supreme Court had already cited two things, the existence of a fundamental right like abortion and the enjoyment of a fundamental right were mutually exclusive. And since the state had an interest in potential life, it could favor or encourage pregnancy and childbirth so long as it didn't prevent women from getting abortions. The court also moved away from Roe's trimester system, 
towards an undue burden standard, which reflected the state's potential interest in life. In their biting dissent to Casey, the minority wrote the following. The undue burden standard has, quote, no basis in constitutional law and will not result in the sort of simple limitation easily applied. To evaluate abortion regulations under that standard, judges will have to make the subjective, unguided determination whether the regulations place substantial obstacles in the path of a woman seeking an abortion, undoubtedly engendering a variety of conflicting views. The standard presents nothing more workable than the trimester framework, the joint opinion discards, and will allow the court, under the guise of the Constitution, to continue to impart its own preference on the states in the form of a complex abortion code. Quote. Now, some would argue that an American woman's access to abortion is more defined by Casey than it is by Roe versus Wade. In an episode of Last Night Tonight with John Oliver, the pundit discussed recent anti-abortion measures. In Oliver's recorded interview with Andrea Ferrigno, the corporate vice president of Whole Woman's Health, Ferrigno explained that she had women who were unable to come to her clinic for their legal abortions and instead asked, quote, what if I tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you tell me what I can do, end quote. Oliver noted that the surge of these new restrictions was forcing women to partake in, quote, the most depressing quickfire challenge in top chef history, end quote. According to the Guttmacher Institute, most women of reproductive age in the United States live in areas that are considered hostile to abortion. The recent barrage of anti-abortion measures overwhelmingly call for mandatory waiting times, parental notification, ultrasounds, and the prevention of the dispensation of the abortion drugs mifepristone and misoprostol in clinics without operating rooms. Some states have even proposed eliminating legal access to abortion at six to eight weeks gestation, measures Iowa and Ohio passed among the 308 other abortion restrictions that were introduced in 37 states in the first quarter of 2018. In 2019, more than a dozen states introduced legislation to ban abortion as early as six weeks into a pregnancy, so soon after a missed period that some women may not have the time for mandatory waiting periods or to get the funds and travel to one of their state's few abortion clinics. While such proposed laws have been subject to legal challenges, they represent part of an aggressive pattern to shorten the window of time a woman has to access a safe and legal abortion. Many, if not all of these regulations, disproportionately affect young women, women of color, low-income women, and women who live in rural areas. Some have argued that these bills are inconsequential, that they are about preventing fetal pain and protecting women's health and safety. Critics of these restrictions argue that their efforts to shame and demean women out of getting the procedure or to impose so many regulations that it's unfeasible for them to get the procedure at all. Against a mountain of evidence that shows that abortion restrictions cause more harm than good, some just want to make abortion difficult to access. The Roe decision declared that all women had the right to safe legal abortions in their first trimester, 
However, depending on where a woman lives, the reality of that decision does not extend to her. As reproductive justice advocates and scholars have noted extensively, there is no choice where there is no access. At this point, it might appear that overturning Roe is more symbolic than anything. Roe has been weakened to the point that overturning it is simply opening the door for states that are hostile to abortion to recriminalize the procedure. This is a step that is just a continuation of a process and pattern that has been ongoing since the 1970s. Yet in the face of such anti-abortion fervor, the rates of abortion in the U.S. have actually steadily declined. Though fewer people are having abortions, abortions haven't lost their significance. Abortion restrictions prevent women from exercising the opportunity to make decisions of their own. And historically, laws that restrict abortion have done little more than to make the procedure more dangerous for the women seeking them. Abortion laws do not discourage desperate women from submitting themselves to unknown practitioners. Rather, abortion restrictions do nothing but advance the notion that women cannot be trusted with their own bodies. What sorts of connections were there between butchery in Tijuana and the United States Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade, which follows very quickly upon, just a few years later, in fact, after the point in time when Alicia concludes this talk? I was curious to ask that and a lot more. Enjoy. Alicia Gutierrez Romine, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's a great honor to the series to have you here. And you start talking about how abortion became illegal throughout the states in the 19th century, throughout much of the 19th century. And you list three pretexts or reasons or uh, factors that bear upon that process in a, in a meaningful way historically. So you talk about the uh, consolidation of professionalized medical authority. Uh, in the 19th century, you talk about race, suicide, and immigrant women's fecundity. Uh, and then you talk about, also, you mention harm reduction. That's another pretext that's out there for the um, criminalization of abortion services. What should we know about those concepts and how they inform our understanding of this moment in the 19th century story? Well, so I think it's important to consider that you know, prior to this, uh, we don't really have the same kind of public discourse about abortion, that it's not really an issue that people are up in arms about. And I think that's maybe difficult for us to grasp now since abortion is such a polarizing issue. Um, but before this, um, you know, it, it wasn't really something that people debated or discussed about in public. It was something that it was understood that women did. Um, and so when we're looking at the professionalization of, of medicine, um, there's, you know, some of the works from like Kristen Luker um, and, and Leslie Reagan, they show us that this was for physicians, 
something to kind of rally behind. Um, it was understood uh, that the people who provided these services, like abortions, were typically midwives um, and oftentimes physicians of, of color. Um, and so as the mainline kind of medical field is organi- organizing around, um, you know, the, the East Coast and and professional white men, um, then this becomes this kind of um, gulf that that it makes it easy for um, these professional men to kind of say we don't do those types of services. Um, that we are educated enough, um, people like Horatio Storer, um, to say that we know that fetuses are, are humans, that they are. Uh, life. And so we are focusing on preserving and protecting life. Um, and the people who perform these services are less educated, less informed. So because so there's a class stratification or like a respectability stratification that's, that's, that's going on here. Absolutely. And so it becomes this really um, kind of simple organizing uh, issue, I guess we could say, um, because it seems to be the one service that can define what is respectable medicine or not. Whether you're performing this per, uh, procedure, uh, if you are performing this procedure, then you are not respectable. Then you are uneducated and you don't know that fetuses are humans um, and you're not protecting women from you know, moral ruin. Um, and if you are not uh, you know, performing these procedures, then that means you actually respect life and you respect, um, you know, appropriate gender roles for women. You know, it's so interesting because the Roe decision to me, I mean, when I read it now, it reads more like a decision about doctors than about women. And it was the exact same way in the Bellis decision. I don't remember if I said that a lot in this talk, but in the Bellis decision, there was a considerable amount of time devoted to physicians' rights um, because physicians were denied due process if they give an abortion and then someone later says, oh, that wasn't a justified reason. And so you would imagine that you know cases about abortion would be about women's health. Uh, you think they would be about rights to you know, constitutional rights to privacy. Um, but instead, it seems like uh, a lot of the reasoning and justification fell on giving physicians the leeway, giving them the rights to practice over mm-hmm. a woman's rights to uh, control her her body. I feel like the, this is more true of Roe than of the K, the the text in in the Casey decision, which comes later, and you, you you talk about that as well. But it does seem like the liberty interest stake is really like the freedom of doctors to perform medicine or to provide medicine without fear of retaliation or or, or you know recursion by the state. Right. Speaking of doctors. Dr. Buffum, there was no law against what he was doing, kind of arranging to bring women across to Tijuana, uh, into Mexico to facilitate right abortion service on the other side of the border. There was nothing particularly illegal about that, right? So in effect, it kind of creates this market for 
right? This 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 service back and forth across the border creates this whole kind of like commerce, if you will, this trade. And is that an accurate characterization of sort of the background of the case? And and what do we know about him? Uh, so Buffum, um, he, you know, his family was from uh, the Midwest and he and his brothers ended up making their way to California. He is related uh, through marriage to the Chandler family of Los Angeles, so really wealthy uh, to do family. He has some run-ins with the California Board of Medical Examiners beginning around the 30s, um, narcotics peddling, uh, things like that. He, uh, I have so much more information that I actually had to cut out about him. Um, he was uh, almost lured into an abortion ring in the mid-30s, but he says he said no. Um and wow. he he kind of disappears from the picture a little bit, and then he gets involved in uh, this case with Reginald Rankin. And Reginald Rankin was the person who tried to get him involved in the abortion ring in the 30s. And so Rankin is also a really interesting character. He ends up uh, making a few different appearances in my book. I follow him through abortion rings in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in California uh, Nevada, and then this kind of border one. Um, so the, the context for this is that, you know, Reginald Rankin had just gotten out of prison again and, mm -hmm. um, you know, he gets involved in all of these different abortion rings, perhaps because he thinks it's an interesting or fast way to make money. Um, and for whatever reason, Buffin does agree this time. To, to be part of this syndicate that they are starting to form. And so they have a, a front in, in Long Beach, which is basically just an office where they make negotiations and they transport women across the border for the procedures. So when this goes to trial, the, the court recognizes the limits of its power. There is a California law against abortion. There is a Mexican law against abortion. But a California law can, or a California court cannot penalize them for an abortion that took place outside of its bounds. And they can't convict them or accuse them of violating Mexican law because they don't have that power either. So it really puts the, the California court in this kind of awkward position because there's really nothing that they can actually get them for. Um, they didn't violate California law because the, it didn't take place in California. And the California court can't penalize them for violating a Mexican law. But Mexico is not, you know, attempting to, and California is trying to, to, to get them for something, but there isn't really anything that California can get them for. So the state of California does try to basically create laws after this to kind of fill this legal loophole that was eventually created. So beginning in some areas around the 1930s, um, it's harder for women to get legal abortions. Um, through their hospital therapeutic abortion committees, through physicians um, who are maybe feeling backlash of, you know, some people having kind of willy-nilly uh, justifications for therapeutic abortions. Um, and so there are these different uh, ways that people are trying to basically restrict the number of abortions that are taking place in, in the States. So, um, 
as individual hospitals are kind of cracking down, they're saying, you know, only legal abortions should be taking place in hospitals. Uh, they should be approved mm-hmm. by these committees. Um, physicians shouldn't really have the the power or the authority to do these on their own in their offices or anything like that. So legal abortions are moving into hospitals and they're coming under the oversight of these therapeutic abortion committees who are trying to, um, kind of be invisible. They don't want their mm-hmm. hospital to be the one that approves every single abortion and that has high abortion numbers. They're kind of imposing their own regulation and their own quotas, which then results in women having less access. If I could pick up here too, th- these these are not I did not know what these were before your talk, therapeutic abortion committees. These were like the abortion deciders in in this moment? In short, yes. So um, basically, if a woman wanted an abortion, she would tell her mm-hmm. physician and then her physician would appeal for her in front of this committee. The committee, you know, where uh, at the, the hospital at uh, where this physician has um I miss the word is escaping me. Um, visiting privileges. Privileges. Yes. Yeah. So at the hospital where this physician has privileges, they appeal before the abortion committee there. Usually there's like a physician, a surgeon, and then like some other, maybe like psycholog- psychologist or something, clinician, whatever. There's usually three to five people on these committees. Um, the physician for the patient would basically say, I have this patient. Um, these are the reasons that she wants uh, an abortion. These are the reasons that I, as a physician, believe they're necessary for her life or health. And then right. the the committee debates and they either approve or disapprove. They don't look at the woman. They don't treat the woman. They're taking the word of this physician uh, to determine whether this woman can have the procedure or not. Who was on these committees? So usually uh, another physician, a surgeon, and then at least one other person. Um, so usually three to all, five people all medical from that hospital. People- Okay. Yeah. So okay. it, there might be like a psychologist, um, especially if one of the justifications is she's suicidal, um, mm-hmm. then there might be like a psychologist on the panel as well. But they're all people who practice or work at that physician and they are all um, medical professionals in some capacity. It was easier for if you're a person of me mm-hmm. to uh, successfully navigate that therapeutic abortion committee process to uh, obtain the outcome that you want, right? Um, to terminate a pregnancy. And uh, so as that becomes more difficult for that sort of elite group of women, right, who are able to successfully navigate that process, as it becomes harder for them to do so. Um, they're turning to people like Buffum to facilitate a workaround. Is that, that's essentially yes. Um, yeah. and uh-huh. so, you know, if a physician is unable to kind of clear the way for a, a legal abortion for, um, their patient, then their patient might turn to, um, you know, female networks. They might see if their friends know somebody who knows somebody. They might ask their physician if they know somebody who can kind of make this happen. And so it's through these different networks and, you know, maybe they talk to a pharmacist who might direct them because people like uh, Rankin and Buffin might offer pharmacist kickbacks if they can refer people. 
So they would maybe find some connection through uh, one of these other places, and then they find someone like Buffum or Rankin, and um, Rankin or Buffum would just take their information. They would select a meeting place and then arrange mm-hmm. transport, um, negotiate cost, everything like that. And then the procedure in this case took place in Tijuana, Mexico, and then they came back. One of the, the main takeaways from your talk that I think is that it's sort of impossible to restrict access to that degree and not create a public health catastrophe. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the more barriers you create to a medical procedure, and this medical procedure especially, um, it's just going to create opportunities for people to, for this black market to thrive. Um, and the lack of regulation in that is going to hurt some women um, in irreparable ways. One of the effects of this is a lot more kind of self-harm occurring in connection with self-induced abortion, attempts to to create enough of a of a wound or an injury to implicate that hospital's legal powers to decide, you know, who can have access to this service or not, right? At this moment, one of the choices they're left with is well, how how much am I going to harm myself to get the medical attention or care that I require? And I mean, I think it shows the desperation that they have that, you know, that they're willing to undergo this type of harm in hopes that they'll be able to get one of these hospitals to, to do what they need to do. I mean, I, I think the fear that... Um, that you know, some women feel when they're missing their period, when they're expecting it, and you know, just how everything just starts clicking in your mind of, uh, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Okay, I can't get it from here. Where do I go from here? Okay, what if I just fall down the stairs? Um, what if I, um, you know, use Lysol? What if I find a, a hanger? And the, the, I think it just shows there, that there's kind of this domino effect in in their thinking and the the lack of options that they that they really have for that to seem like okay this is this is what I'm going to do. How do you bring these women and their what 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 they're encountering and what they're enduring and dealing with? Um, what what allows us to get inside? their feeling. So that was hard. And I feel like that might be the one area in, in the book where I took more liberties, I suppose, and trying to, you know, think what did this woman feel like? What were her options? What, what would I have felt like in that situation? Um, I mean, I have coroner's records. I have records and investigation files from, um, the medical examiners, they talk to friends, they talk to family members, they interview sisters, partners. Um, mm-hmm. I have those. I have newspaper articles sometimes where they also interview other friends or family members. And it's kind of, I have these little different pieces of information. And then my interpretation is basically what the gaps are. Um, 
And so I I actually opened my book with a, a story about a woman who was a waitress and, and mother of four, and she found out she was pregnant again. And she was married, and she decided to, you know, go get an abortion in Tijuana, and she died. And so thinking about, okay, this is a woman who's in a relationship that's I don't know the stability of her relationship. I know she already has children. I know she's working. I know she already has a job. Um, Is it financial? Is it emotional? Is it a relationship thing? And, uh, you know, you can only think of so many different options. And so part of it is, you know, me assuming or or guessing or trying to make a, a decision or an understanding based on all of these different factors that we can gather from you know, coroner's records and, you know, interviews with friends and family members. I can really relate to what you're describing about having to, to kind of encounter and reconstruct the experiences of these women uh, who surface in, in your story, in your book, uh, irrespective of however, you know, much kind of that needs to rest on the balance of probabilities in some cases. Yeah, and and I think a lot of that has to do with just the nature of the sources as well. I mean, I'm the confidential records at, you know, the the California mm-hmm. State Archives. Um and um you know, coroner's records where they're using the body as evidence. And so it's not the woman's testimony, it's not, you know, she is deceased and she is on a table. And, you know, the details from the coroner's records might say her age and, you know, if she's married or if she had any other kind of medical conditions. Um, In some instances, uh, there was one report I recall, and, you know, the coroner did the autopsy, everything, and then he just provided additional notes or comments. And he said, you know, for for their children, state relief. Um, So this woman had other children and she was on welfare. And this was, I think, a case during the depression era. And so, you know, recognizing those other contributing factors, um, and abortion is stigmatized. And so people don't speak about it. They don't speak about, Mm -hmm. um, abortions they have that are successful, um, because then there's, you know, criticism about the procedure itself, justifications for it. And so the abortions we hear about, are the cases where women die, it perpetuates this idea that abortions are inherently unsafe because no one is talking about safe perf- uh, abortions that were performed, that they survived. Um, and so because, you know, fatal abortions are the ones that I have sources for, you know, I there's only so much that I can actually get from the right. subject yeah, themselves. That's- yeah, that's that's a yeah that that is that it, on the one hand there, the, the, these sources have such powerful material that you know you you bring into the work that you need to use them right I mean they're but they they do come with these challenges that all of us have to wow yeah I hadn't thought about that and amazing and, you know the narrative is coming from law enforcement medical men medical men what about their motivations I mean is it, it seems like Buffum was 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 he was it was it altruism? Was it medical altruism or was it uh, financial incentive at work? Uh, Because it seems like he's working with more kind of like an elite class of women um, and Bellis too, I suppose. I, you know, I have a hard time putting my finger on, on Rankin and um, Mm -hmm. because he, 
during the Depression era, he did some kind of shady tax things. Um, and so he seems like a person who's interested in making money. And I think that might be his primary thing. However, mm-hmm. I won't disparage him because when he, uh, and again, he's one of those people who, who makes a few um, appearances in my book. Um, in the 1930s, he provided a really large and safe abortion syndicate for women all along the West Coast. They were making the modern day equivalent of millions of dollars a month just providing these Whoa. procedures. And so that's, he goes to San Quentin for it for, for a little bit. And then he kind of goes to Vegas, tries to, or Nevada and tries to do this other abortion ring. So this isn't just business, but it's big, it's big business. I mean, it, and when yeah. he had that really large syndicate on the West Coast in the 30s, he was providing safe abortions for women. I did not find in my records um, any fatalities that occurred under his watch. And so if, you know, he was in this, and I do believe he was in this in the interest of making money. However, he did it in a way that he was providing safe procedures for these women. Um, and so I, that's one of the things that makes me kind of conflicted about him. Um, but he also, um, in this 1930s venture, he made it accessible. Uh, if a woman couldn't pay, he allowed them to finance it. He allowed them to, you know, put up things for collateral, um, for a loan for the procedure. And so still making money. And of course, you know, he made them pay interest on it. Um, but it was still kind of more accessible and these women were getting safe treatments from medical professionals. Um, so I think that is, that is one of the main reasons that, um, I don't know if I could speak ill of him. <laughs> the women themselves, you, you talk about getting into this, this moment in the 1950s and 60s as a very pronatalist. This is something I, I bring up whenever I talk about this period because students are interested in it and uh, it it does call attention to the this complicated admixture of like cost and benefit, right? Um, that uh, so how does that inform that pronatalist ideology that you talk about? And I don't want to mischaracterize it. So if I have mischaracterized it, please do correct me. Yeah, and and I don't think you're you're mischaracterizing it at all. Um, if you have this kind of pronatalist baby boom era, right? The idea that mm. families are kind of the center of American life in this you know Cold War era. Um, you have the nuclear family as like the basic unit for American life at this time, um, and you have economic opportunity with the rise of the suburbs, the GI Bill, like it's. Uh, I, I, and I think in my own classes, when I teach this, I call this like the golden era of capitalism, uh, you know, that this is a, a moment or an opportunity where the middle class is doing pretty well. Um, Mm -hmm. and so if that is kind of the, the national sentiment, right. If we're taking a temperature of what the nation is like, it's pro family, it's pro suburbs, it's pro all of these, uh, things. And so for a woman who kind of doesn't fit with that. Or if a woman wants an abortion, it doesn't quite fit or align with that national sentiment. This is also this era where we have, uh, it's sometimes referred to as the baby scoop era, right? Where you have young women who are maybe 
having a, a, a child out of wedlock and they're essentially forced to give up that child for adoption because there are families who want children and can't have them. There are people mm-hmm. who are buying into this, you know, nuclear family American life with, you know, the the 3.5 kids or four, you know, 4.5 kids, whatever it is in the baby boom, um, but who maybe can't. And so you have this moment where where babies are desirable, um, they're wanted. Um, you have this moment before birth control is accessible um, and this kind of pronatalist society. So for a woman who doesn't want a child, for a woman who wants an abortion, it doesn't quite align well. There are other options, it seems, in this moment, which are to essentially force her to to give this child up for adoption, kind of repent. That's one way to kind of get over this um you know, perceived moral failure. Um, and then for that young woman to be able to, to go on get married, have a respectable future. And then for that child that she has now given up to have a, a good life in some nuclear home in the suburbs somewhere. Right. Wow. So it, it, yeah, it, uh, th- this is a, a powerful, uh, constraint. And 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 influence at, on, at least ideologically. On. You know, it's it's possibly playing into the minds of these physicians on the therapeutic abortion committee, who are saying, "Well, you know, you're healthy. You don't have any medical issues. You don't need an abortion. Um, you just accidentally, you know, hooked up with this kid who went off to college now, and now you're left with this child." But there are these families that want that. So have the child, give yeah. it up for adoption. You don't need an abortion. Your life is not in danger. Your life is not at risk. And someone will take the baby and then you will get over it and be fine. I'm assuming that all the vast majority of the time that the people making these decisions on the therapeutic abortion committees are are all male. Yeah, for the most part. I I mean, I don't recall any specific instance where there was a woman on one of these boards. Um, and I and I definitely did not study every single therapeutic abortion committee in the state or anything like that. But of the records that I did encounter that listed physicians on these, they were all male. Wow. But there are, you know, sometimes women social workers who are uh, encouraging, you know, young women to give up children for adoption. Um, they're in these other com- capacities, but they're still kind of operating under the same umbrella of like, what is good for you? It's infantilizing. Is Yeah. I mean, it would seem to have just enormous mental health consequence downstream from that, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, the the baby scoop era was something that I you know, came across in tangent. And if you have, you know, these 16 to, you know, 20 year old women, young women, and, you know, this might've been their first sweetheart or, or real relationship or the first time they were intimate with someone. And then they have to bear, I think, not just the physical cost of, of having to give that child up for adoption, but the, the mental cost as well. And so I think for a lot of those women who had no say in, in giving up their child for adoption, there were a lot of, of mental wounds. Now, in terms of, you know, 
studies that have been done on like mental health and abortion, I think recently there was one that that came out that said about 95 or 96% of women who had abortions were still happy five years later um, that mm-hmm. they had their procedure. And so the vast majority, um, but, you know, a lot of these, these young women who were forced to give up their child for adoption, right? That was the only option that they had. And I think many of them had wounds from that, that they were unable to heal from. I want to ask about how you came to this work and what, what, what drew you to it and how did you get to be this historian that I'm talking to right now? I, I was always interested in medical history. Um, and so from undergraduate through graduate school, I knew I was interested in something with medical history. I thought it was actually going to be the eugenics movement. Um, and then as I kind of went through my graduate coursework, um, I came across, um, different physicians of color in Southern California and, um, you know, in the thirties and forties. And I wanted to kind of write my dissertation about them in some way. So talking about medicine and race in Southern California from like the 30s to the 50s. And so I got funding to go to the California State Archives. Um, I wanted to look at um, physician license revocation files. Um, I thought that's where I would find more physicians of color. Um, was in people getting their licenses revoked. Right, okay. And uh, I made a mistake I didn't contact the archivist in advance to get records from the 50s um, mm-hmm. because they were still too recent. And so I was unable to access the records that I wanted. And I had funding to be there for a whole week. And I was really upset at myself. And I just told them to let me access the records that were old enough that I could look at. Right, right. Okay. And um, I think I, I spent the whole first part of the day, you know, cursing at myself under my breath and going through these records. And I kept coming across uh, documents that said illegal operation as the reason that this physician got their license revoked. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, At this time, I was probably in my fourth year of graduate school, maybe fifth year of graduate school. I was really young and naive. And I, I didn't, you know, what makes a, a, a surgery illegal? What makes an operation illegal? I thought physicians determine when something's necessary. Um, and I just kept coming across that phrase. And then over the course of the day, I realized that it was a euphemism for abortion. And these physicians were getting their licenses revoked for performing them. And so then I started having questions, you know, why are they why are they doing that if they're going to get their mm-hmm. license revoked? What are the incentives for the physician? And then, you know, thinking historically, like, I'm a millennial. I've only lived in a post-Roe world. I've never even considered what it was like before abortion was legal. And the fact that we have a case that says, okay, it's legal from here, suggests that it was completely illegal before that. And so I just started kind of asking questions. And then over, uh, I think it was like in the last hour of my first day was when I ran across my, my first records that were about the Pacific Coast abortion ring, which was the the multi-million dollar ring that Reginald Rankin had set up. And it was headquartered in LA. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, what is going on? They're making so much money. This is insane. I did a really quick Google search and I found absolutely nothing. There was one footnote on um, Leslie Reagan's When Abortion Was a Crime. And that was it. That was the only thing that I found that came up. 
So I packed up my boxes because everything was, you know, it was time to go. And as I was making my way back to my hotel room, I sent an email to, to my advisor, Bill Deverell, and, uh, who's like the king of LA history. <laughs> and I said, have you ever heard of the Pacific Coast abortion ring? They were headquartered in LA 1930s. It wasn't complete sentences at all. And, uh, you know, they provided abortions and, he wrote me back, um, I think before I'd even made it back to my hotel. And he said, I've never heard of it. You need to find out everything you can. And once I heard that from him, okay, I, yeah. I was, you know, I wanted to do this other project about physicians and race and everything like that. But I also wanted to finish my dissertation in a reasonable amount of time. And when I realized that this was potentially that, that way to get that, I just completely sw- switched gears and said, okay, like, my dissertation somewhere right here with abortion, with the Pacific Coast abortion ring. I just need to figure it out. We're going to be in a post-post-row moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, probably within the next few years. Um, so what do you think this history uh, has to teach us about? Looking forward to that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's... I, I, I listen to oral arguments in the Supreme Court. I don't think there's any mystery about what what what's in likely to happen there in the next few years. Um, uh, so how can this history kind of prepare us to encounter that moment? Should it happen? I think in the event that Roe is overturned, um, for states that already protect abortion, we're not going to see much of a change. Um, I think some individual states are beginning to lay a framework for a post-post-Roe world. Um, I think it was recently, I forget if it was Tennessee, Mississippi, or Alabama, uh, one of them rewrote their constitution to say that abortion was not a right um, in just the last probably three to six months. And so the the fact that some of these individual states are either taking the initiative to uh, protect Roe to enshrine Roe in state constitutions or to um, set the framework for the elimination of legal abortion should Roe be overturned kind of tells us that states are basically on two divergent paths. Um, in some places like California, abortion will, you know, where I live, abortion will probably still remain legal if just Roe were overturned. Um, but in some of these other Southern states, I think there are are setting up everything for the eventual um, elimination of legal access to the procedure. Um, However, I also think to an extent Roe is symbolic more than, uh, than anything at this moment. I think we see more and more that women's access to abortion is more defined by Casey, the Casey decision. Um, How many, hoops they have to go through in order to access an abortion. How many uh, clinics remain open in their state has more to do with the Casey decision and whether they're going to have to drive 500 miles or five miles to find their nearest clinic, whether they're going to need to visit that clinic twice. Uh, We are essentially already living in a post-post-Roe world. We're living in a Casey world where um, access to abortion is already becoming restricted through this kind of undue burden standard. And so I think the states where abortion is 
legal and protected, I think they will remain kind of bulwarks of this. This will be the places where people in other states have to go to, but then that will also result in the fact that poor women are going to be most at risk. They're going to have the least resources, women of color, women in rural areas. These are the women who are not going to have the ability to take a weekend trip to California to go get a procedure and then come back home. Uh, These are the women who can't get a sitter to drive across the state for a day have their 72-hour mandated waiting period, and then go back. Um, These are the people who are going to be most affected. And so in places where abortion potentially becomes illegal after Roe is overturned, uh, I think we will begin to see more of a rise in self-induced abortions. We're going to see a return of of a black market in, in some way. That would fall right into the pattern that you describe in the 1560s, where a lot of the harm that's arising from these these legal restrictions, the uh, um, uh, impediment to kind of legal access to these services, becomes a kind of reason to begin tinkering with these laws and and liberalizing them in some places um, because all that harm is becoming more visible, more evident. The Um, fact that even some states were using COVID-19, using the pandemic in order to push anti-abortion agendas to limit the administering of the abortion drugs because people couldn't meet in person or see their physician in person. So people in some states were actually using this pandemic we were in using this current public health crisis in order to essentially facilitate another one. It doesn't seem like all that many minds have been changed on the issue. So I think this stems from a few different issues. So um, I think if you look at statistics, um, I think it's about 80, about 78, 80% of Americans agree with abortion in some aspect. That doesn't mean they're full pro-choice or anything like that, but at least, you know, in the event of of a health issue for the life of the mother. So this whole spectrum, in at least some instances, abortion should be legal at at minimum medical requirement, at most pro-choice, do what you want. Okay. Um, So most Americans believe in an access to a medical procedure. And again, I want to reiterate that, like, you know, you've never you're never going to see an article about like, oh, you know, what is your opinion on, uh, you know, rhinoplasties or, you know, breast augmentations. It's not, that's not the same kind of thing. Those are medical procedures as well. But, but this is one that draws particular ire. And I think part of that is because there are some people who, regardless of, of anything, believe that a, a fetus is a person from the moment of conception. And those are people you cannot argue with. You cannot mm-hmm. sway for for whatever reason because of, of religious reasons, moral reasons, personal reasons. They believe that as soon as conception happen, happens, that is a person. And so that is a, a faction of the population that you will never get on board with Roe. And they are vocal um, because they believe it is murder. Um, and... So part of this is, I think, 
that group of people. There are also people who don't like Roe for other reasons, that it's uh, seen as kind of like a feminist agenda or that it's about women kind of separating reproduction from um, sexuality. Um, And so you might have religious people who think it contributes to the decline of the family. And so I think there are some people who will not be swayed on um, the the public health or the the personal aspects of of Roe. And I think there was something that was really interesting um, that came up, I think, during the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation um, when they were talking to her about stare decisis, about, you know, uh, accepting precedent of of previous cases. And, you know, they, I think they did ask her about Brown and then they did ask her about Roe versus Wade. And so, you know, one of the questions was, you know, is Brown, you know, you know, precedent or is it like challengeable? I, I don't remember the exact words, so excuse me. Yeah. Um, but she was like, no, like, you know, to my knowledge, no one is trying to overturn Brown. So it stands, it's firm. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact she later said that, um, that people are still trying to chip away at Roe suggests that it is not established precedent. Clearly, uh, it is still with us that things we're going to have to continue to confront and encounter moving forward. And I know that you have enabled me to do that a little bit more wisely <laughs> today. Um, I, I know so to all of everyone out there who's listening. So I want to thank you for a wonderful talk and for bearing with me for over an hour of my- Oh no, this was enjoyable. I uh, Otherwise I have no humans to talk to today. <laughs> all right. Well, we, we thank you and we honor you. Alicia Gutierrez Romain. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And that's a wrap. Next time around, the scene shifts up the West Coast to Alaska, and Tess Lanzarata joins the pod to explain why Alaska's history of tuberculosis control in the early Cold War era is something all of us should know about and acknowledge. Please join us.